lay teacher in the industrial school. She told me if you could read, you could learn anything. The greatest wrong that was done was the denial of our identity. Activism is not about shouting the odds. It's about building the policies that will change the legislation that continues to violate the rights of Irish people. The voice of Mary Harney, a double graduate of NUI Galway and an extraordinary human rights champion who enriches the life of every person and community that she meets. Mary is my guest on this edition of the Kush Karaba podcast, the series that examines major societal issues and the role that NUI Galway and our global network of alumni play in creating new knowledge, in research, in policymaking, and in problem solving worldwide. My name is Maeve O'Rourke. I'm a lecturer in the Irish Centre for Human Rights, which is part of the School of Law at NUI Galway. I am also director of the Human Rights Law Clinic at the Centre. Mary Harney is one of our tutors in the clinic, and I'm really looking forward in the course of this podcast to discussing Mary's thoughts on movement lawyering. But first, let me introduce you to Mary's life work and her personal experiences. Mary was born in 1949 to her mother, Peggy Harney, in Bessborough Mother and Baby Home in Cork. And following an abuse of foster care placement, Mary was sent by court order to the Good Shepherd Industrial School at Sunday's Well in Cork at age five. Mary is currently a member of the Irish government's collaborative forum of mother and baby home survivors, but Mary prefers the term resistor to survivor. And I am delighted that she has agreed to speak to us here on this podcast today. So Mary, welcome and thank you so much. Thank you, Maeve. And I'm delighted to be talking with you today. Mary, you said in your 2014 commencement address at the College of the Atlantic that you think a lot about the times when someone had faith in you, in your abilities, in your intelligence and in the promise of your future. Could you tell me more about what those times were and who those people were? Well, the first person that I have always given credit to and it remains true, is a lay teacher in the industrial school called Miss O'Donnell. When I was in her class, I was an avid reader at that time, but she noticed one day the bruises on my arms after I had been beaten by the nuns. Quietly during class, she called me up to the table and said that I could, in times of trouble, and she was talking about the abuse, uh, take my imagination and think about the stories I had read and imagine myself to be in those places. And that would help me. And I did start doing that. I would focus on something in front of me if I was being beaten, um, might have been a big clock or something. And through that, I would create the images of some stories I had read. And I realized that imagination and reading created for me an escapism, not merely from the abuse, but also 
into places that I wanted to explore, topics that I wanted to understand. And so she believed in my abilities of reading. And she told me, you could go anywhere. If you could read, you could learn anything. And so I began that. Um, and so she was the first person who believed that I was capable of doing that. And then following my self-teaching through reading, when I went to England and I was homeless, uh, wandering the streets, I wandered into libraries. I taught myself history and geography, not a lot about geography, but I taught myself history and read books on the historical injustices. At least I became aware of what injustice was. And I found that also as I wandered homeless that there was a lot of discrimination against Irish people in England at that time. So I had to deal with that as well as being on the streets. But eventually um, I did find my mother and I did go to live with her. But what I found was that the psychological effects of institutionalization was greater than the bond that my mother had created with me when I was born. That had been completely broken by the age two and a half, but the institutionalization continued in my psyche. And so I joined, um, I joined British Army. And that was another gift of being in the army was free courses on education. I studied in particular current affairs and again was made aware of colonialization and aspects of power and oppression. And that again piqued my interest in justice. And so when I left the army and joined the fire department, I began to see that the women who served, even though we were not firefighters, allowed to be firefighters at that time, we were still discriminated. And, and they were things like men were allowed more annual leave than the women were. Men were allowed a larger clothing allowance. They were small things, but they were still discrimination. And so I became a trades union section leader to advocate for equal rights in the fire department. And I maintained that position as a trades union person for a long time. I ended my fire department service after 20 years. And I realized that I was not qualified to do other jobs because I had never trained for anything. And I began to think about getting a college degree or going to college. And I applied to places in London, but I was refused on the basis of my minimal Irish education. And so on a trip to America at the time, I came across a small college and I took their brochure and brought it home with me and I read it and read it. And the more I read about what this tiny college did, 
the more I thought I could do that if I was given a chance. So I filled out the application, sent it away, not hoping for anything, just sent it away. And the answer back was for me to write an essay and fill out some forms and send it back. And I did my essay on the way business and ethics combine, looking at the organization of the now worldwide body shop, which was started in England by Anita Roddick. So I looked at her business ethics and combined that with my finished my essay and sent that off with the other questionnaires. I got the answer back asking me to go for an interview, which I did. And the admissions team at College of the Atlantic pointed out to me that in all honesty, with an eighth, what the Americans classed as an eighth grade education, I really wasn't eligible to enter the college. But their mission is so broad about human rights and justice that I think I talked my way in by asking them just to give me the opportunity. And they believed in me enough to do that. And from there, my education truly began. The same thing happened at NUIG. I had a BA, but I absolutely refuse and have always refused to take standardized entry tests for universities. And again, the faith of the interviewers, again, they gave me the opportunity. And I got my first degree. And then with that, I was able to get my second degree, LLM in human rights. During that time, I did go through a very hard time And the staff there were supportive, generous, understanding to the point where I continued my studies successfully. And you were supported as well by a very prestigious Government of Ireland scholarship for that Masters in Law degree, just demonstrating, Mary, your absolutely enormous capabilities and contributions. You said in your commencement address again in 2014 that you'd learned from your undergraduate education that education is more than a mental exercise. It is about doing and being, about how you can use your education in the world around you. So could you tell me how you experienced that shift, having been really interested in reading and knowing you wanted to get to university, but then what was it that made you realize that education is more than that mental exercise? Yes, I when I went to the small town of Bar Harbor, which is the playground in the summer times for the rich, I discovered that discrimination was alive and well. I was looking for housing and I was with another couple of students. And one of the students outed me as being a lesbian to the person we were looking to rent from. And they said, oh, no, we can't have that. No, no. And so I was told about this. And I thought, you know, this is not okay. 
And I looked at other things that were going on in Bar Harbor, and I realized the visibility of the LGBT community was almost hidden. And the reason was they were discriminated against. I mean, another example is that a huge science institution that deals in genetics employs enormous amount of people in Bar Harbor, and they gave medical insurance to married couples, but not to same-sex couples. That, for me, was a big eye-opener that this was still going on in the 90s. I also found that gay and lesbian, bisexual, transgender people were discriminated because when they were suffering from HIV or AIDS, they were discriminated in housing if people found out. So there was all sorts of discrimination going on in this small town. And I realized that something would have to be done about it. And so I got involved and we started grassroots movements for equal housing. Also, at that time, same-sex couples weren't allowed to open joint bank accounts. There were different things that we dealt with as a group. This was a community group made up from all walks of life, and it included a peer education team that I started at College of the Atlantic. And so we set ourselves up to become educators community educators, and we were taught everything about HIV AIDS and taught how to present the information in sensitive ways. And then we applied to high schools to go into high schools to teach teenagers. And needless to say, that was a difficult task, but we did get in there and we found the best way to educate which was inclusive, was to form peer education groups within the school themselves. Because I noticed as we gave our HIV lectures from podiums and within the rooms, eyes glazed over. You know, young people were basically saying, oh, not another lecture. And so I determined that our best method was to actually not include staff or authorities in the actual teaching, but to ask students to create from their own experiences a template for education. And it was different in every school. And that's what we did. Where the shift in my thinking came was I attended a class that was about justice and rights. And through that class, I discovered there was a book that I was reading called Getting to the Yes, the Seven Principles of something or other. But the theme of this was that in order to get people to come together to engage in social justice, we as white privileged people often create curriculums that have no involvement from the people that we're going out to speak to or that we're teaching. 
And this came as a severe eye-opener eye to me because I had always thought that that was how classes were supposed to be taught. So I was given a task to take my HIV AIDS information to one of the Native American schools in the north of Maine. And I thought about it a long time. And when I got there, I met with the elders of the tribe there and the school teachers and the local counselors. And I sat down with them and they introduced themselves and I introduced myself. And then I said, I cannot interpret your language or your rituals or your methods of teaching your own people. So then I said, I come to you today with one thing, and that is I have knowledge that I can impart. I will impart it to you in a way that you can then interpret it to your own community in whatever method you see fit. I will be your conduit for providing information, but you will be the grassroots and community organizers as to how this information is given to your own community. And I found that that worked exceedingly well. And from there on, I instilled into every group I worked with young peer educators that we must involve the people that we are trying to impart information or education to. We must involve them in the process of designing or creating the curriculum that speaks to people in the community. With all that experience and expertise in your background, Mary, you then arrived at the Irish Centre for Human Rights in 2019 and you were a student in the Human Rights Law Clinic and this year you're a tutor and students in that clinic, both last year and this year, learn about theories and methods of movement lawyering or social justice lawyering, which is to say the notion that lawyers would get involved with community-based movements for social justice in order to work in whatever way that that community asks them to do or lets them know is the most important way of working and what the most important goals are. So students in our clinic are working with you this year um, on education initiatives concerning our institutional gender-based abuses, also working with organizers who are building and contributing to movements against climate injustice, race-based discrimination, homelessness, and violence against women. Could you tell me, Mary, about what you found or gained or what you have to reflect on from that clinic experience, bearing in mind your huge expertise before that, but possibly what law had to add to it and what you got from that human rights law clinic? Well, once I was an activist when I was a trade unionist, and we did a lot of protesting. I've marched in many marches, holding up banners. And in 2018, I realized that that type of protest against injustice is great for visual effects. 
But what we needed to do, in my opinion, was combine that with a deep background of the law and the study of human rights abuses. This came to me as another eye-opener. And when I attended a conference in Boston in 2018, and you were there, Maeve, and the encouragement, again, this is people who've believed in me, the encouragement from people here at the Irish Human Rights Centre that I could do this, I could get a knowledge of law, again, is what propelled me towards the master's. So what I did was combine my knowledge and and 50 years of activism with a deep understanding of the roots and causes and remedies that are available through legal roots. But also the most important for me is the uh, involvement of the grassroots movements. Um, The clinic, I jumped on that straight away because I thought this combines what I deeply am passionate about, the chance, the opportunity to work effectively in small groups in communities to extend and expand knowledge and awareness and activism around all those issues that you talked about there, Maeve, that the clinic is working on, environmental injustice, direct provision, all of those that continue to this day. But I based mine on the abuses that the Irish government perpetrated on hundreds of thousands of women and children in the institutions they created for the containment of people that they had stigmatized and othered through their policies, namely unmarried women and their children and other institutions such as industrial schools and Magdalene laundries. And to that end, the clinic for me was, I, I got so much out of my education there. I had the grounding and the solid background of information, but what made my whole experience a pure joy was that clinic. It was the essence of what I believe in. And the reason is because, as you said, it combines the activism, the education together with the community and the famous movement lawyering theory of lawyers trying to work with the community came into play here in our clinic experience because we, as a group, two groups of us, we engaged very much with the community. For instance, when we were designing our um, data rights protection information, I found an illustrator that gave their time for free to illustrate some of our work. We had a lawyer who pro bono came and looked over our GDPR information We had other members in the community that came to speak to us that imparted their knowledge. We had PhD students who taught us how to create websites. We um, spoke to community advisors in Galway itself. 
And we created a system whereby we were able to reach into the community and get expertise from the community in order to put together the resources for web pages. We also had input, of course, from the survivors themselves, because it wouldn't be worth anything if we didn't do that. And eventually we came up with uh, websites and the notion for a national archive for housing the files of the survivors of institutions that they could then provide their oral histories, their testimonies. But the most important thing, I think, for me was the fact that we needed to enlighten the Irish people about this dark history of Ireland. It's never mentioned in history books. So we decided that if we went to create a curriculum that would include an overall human rights theme, but contain a history and resources for young people we begin with the young and we empower the young to teach their peers and their parents because they go back home and talk about their education. And so this year's clinic is involved in creating a pilot curriculum that would speak to the diversity of experiences of people in institutions. We would show how this system was created by othering and stigmatizing people and putting them on the outside of Irish society. We created communities of unwanted, and I use that term, it's a horrible term, but the women were, and the children that were in these institutions were not wanted in society. They were to be hidden from society and they became the other. There were households that threatened their own children with, if you don't behave yourself, we'll send you to the Good Shepherds. Or if you don't behave yourself, you go to a Magdalene laundry. And these were the kind of things. Now, what also must be remembered is that detentions in these institutions were arbitrary. There was no crime committed. There were no crimes committed. These were arbitrary detentions against the human rights of individuals. They were also when the families were broken up and children were either illegally fostered, adopted, or trafficked to other countries. These violated human rights that Ireland had ratified and signed on to under treaties that prohibited trafficking of women and children, prohibited enforced disappearance, prohibited forced labor, and they denied overall the greatest wrong that was done was the denial of our identity. We were denied our names, we were denied our birth certificates, we still are denied those things. And this is what we're working towards today to achieve justice, to provide us 
with our basic human rights that were denied to us by successive Irish governments since 1922, no matter what treaty they signed on to. And so this clinic is providing students with the background knowledge of policies and laws that uh, violated and trampled all over the human rights of Irish citizens. And again, it goes against the constitution of Ireland. And so these continue to be human rights violations because we are denied the right to access our birth certificates, our early life information. If we go to medical appointments and the doctors ask us for our history of medical issues, we can't give it because it's contained in files that are locked away for up to 75 years. At one time, that was the proposal. We went to the Doyle and I was a part of the team that went and spoke to the Doyle and that has been scrapped for now, but the Irish government still wants to contain our files, not give us our information and put those files in archives for over 30 years that academics, lawyers and survivors themselves will not be able to access. So these are the kind of injustices that we're working towards solving. And we believe that the way to solve these is grassroots campaigns. And this is why education is so important because the education, in my opinion, is necessary to combine with activism. Activism is not about shouting the odds. It's about building campaigns, building resources, building the policies that will change the legislation that continues to discriminate, that continues to violate the rights of Irish people, the rights of people seeking asylum, such as direct provision. These things have to go and we have to ensure that they don't happen again. Human rights champion and NUI Galway alumnus Mary Harney, bringing this edition of the Kush Kuriba podcast to a close. Thanks for listening and do join us again next time for more news on our exciting research, cutting edge innovation and our global alumni stories at NUI Galway. Mm-hmm.